And now if you have children between the ages of four and six, you may send them to children's worship training where they will learn more about corporate worship. They're also welcome to remain here with you as we turn together to the book of Zechariah, to the very last chapter, the end of our journey with the prophet Zechariah, chapter 14. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. Zechariah chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered. And the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northwards and the other half southwards. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and His name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Henael to the king's winepresses. And it shall be inhabited... For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. And their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight against Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. 
And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plagues with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. There shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judea shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, Lord, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word. By the power of your spirit, open to us your word, that we might know you better, that we might serve you, and that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We are coming now to the end, the 14th chapter, of a very difficult book. As we have gone through the book of Zechariah, there have been many occasions in which we have looked at his prophecies and his text and wondered exactly how we are supposed to understand what he is telling us. And chapter 14, I think, has the privilege of being the most difficult of the passages in Zechariah. No one less than Martin Luther wrote two commentaries on the book of Zechariah. His first was in Latin. And inexplicably, it stops at chapter 13, verse 9. I think we can understand why it stops, because in his second commentary, in German, he begins his study of chapter 14 by saying, I give up. I have no idea what this means. That doesn't fill the minister with a sense of great confidence. But as we look at this text, I think what our task is, is not to try and find all of the minute twists and turns, to find all of the details in our modern day life, but rather instead to look at this passage as something that shows to us the great importance of the coming day of the Lord and how the Lord our God Jesus Christ is returning to claim for himself his people and to establish a kingdom. And so this morning in our text, I'd like us to see three broad outlines. The first thing that I would like us to see is the return of Christ. In the first five verses, we see the return of Jesus Christ. And then the second section goes from verses 6 to 11 
we see the king is here. Jesus has returned, and that makes all the difference. And then the last thing we see starting at verse 12 and going on is we see the reign of Jesus Christ and how the reign of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done shows the great difference between two sorts of people. The return of Christ, the king is here, and the reign of Christ. Let's begin then by looking at this first section, the first five verses of chapter 14. This is indeed the conclusion of Zechariah's prophecy. Some in this prophecy, in this chapter, see headlines as if it were in a newspaper about a battle that will occur in Jerusalem. But I don't think that's what Zechariah is trying to give us, a blow-by-blow of future history. I think what he's trying to do is to lay out before us something that was true in his day, and is true in our day, and will be true until the Lord returns. Here we see the end of all things. Zechariah signals this to us in the beginning of chapter 14. He says, a day is coming. And then later on he says, not once or twice, but seven times this phrase, on that day, that points us toward the future consummation. And what we begin to see here in these first few verses is the world's resistance to the returning Christ. This is the end of redemptive history, but the emphasis is not on the ease of the church. The emphasis is not on the power of believers. So often, people look at us and they tell us that we need to be strong as Christians, that we need to conquer, that we are the ones who must do the work. But Zechariah shows us a different side. He tells us that the world continues on as it always has been. The world has always been hostile to the Lord and to His people. It began with Cain and Abel and the murder of a brother. We saw it in the time of Noah, how the entire world rebelled against the Lord our God. We saw it in the story of Egypt and a Pharaoh who resisted and rebelled against God and kept his people enslaved. We see it in the history of the Old Testament, how the nations around Israel fought with her and sought To destroy her. And we see it even in our own history, even up into our day, in the forces of Islam and of the secularization of the world. The world fights the Lord and His work. And now, here, what we see is the world's final response to the Lord as Jesus returns. We see it in verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, the house plundered, the people will go into exile. You see, what we have here is the world's final response, and it shouldn't surprise us that what it is is to reject God. The world's response is to bring violence to the people of God. They want to exclude the people of God. They want to exile them. They want to put them... In a corner. Zechariah wants us to have a realistic picture of the world. 
Now, it is true that there have been times of blessing and revival throughout the world in which the church of Jesus Christ has prospered. There have been times of peace for the people of God. We live in one of those times right now. We worship here the Lord this morning without fear that the police will break in the doors and arrest us all. The army will not come in with guns and take our children off to be sold into slavery. We live in a time of great peace. But this is the exception for the people of God. We cannot be put in a place where we think the whole world will turn to Christ. No, instead we see with Zechariah that the cost of following Jesus Christ is high. Often we misunderstand the cost of following Jesus. In our day and age, we think the cost of following Jesus is, for the most part, social awkwardness. That people make snide comments around us. Perhaps it rises to the level of not being able to be as successful in business or in school as we would like to be. But for the most part, the cost of following Jesus Christ is pain. It's affliction. This is what our brothers and sisters around the world now experience. The cost of following Jesus Christ in Africa, in Asia, in India, throughout the world, is much higher than we consider it to be here in America. If we are compelled to think about this, as I believe Zechariah makes us think about this, we must ask the question, are you willing to pay the cost of following Jesus? Are you willing to take up your cross, to suffer pain and suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ? This should not surprise us because the world hates Jesus. Jesus himself told us this in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. What it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ is to experience suffering, want, and lack. The epistle to the Hebrews puts it well. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging. And even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. Destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Of whom the world was not worthy. You see, this is the attitude of the world toward the people of God and Jesus Christ. But the good news is that we can have hope. Not because we believe we will win the day. Not because we think the enemy will give up. But rather because the Lord will not allow us to perish. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against the nations as when he fights in the day of battle. The Lord fights for his people. And the way Zechariah puts it should bring to our minds... Images of the Lord our God fighting for His people throughout redemptive history. He fights as when He fights in the day of battle. This should make us think of the strong town of Jericho with its impregnable walls that thought that the ragtag bunch of Israelites could do nothing to them. 
And yet the Lord our God came and fought for them. And the walls tumbled down. We remember the story of Gideon and how the Lord pared down his fighting force smaller and smaller and smaller until it was just a scant few. So that the Lord our God would get all the glory from the victory that was won. It was not Gideon's victory. It was not Israel's victory. It was the Lord's victory. We think about Hezekiah praying to the Lord at Jerusalem as 185,000 Assyrians surrounded them, ready to destroy the city and kill the people of God. And the Lord our God came and fought for Israel, and all of the Assyrians to a man were destroyed. You see, Zechariah wants us to see and understand the power of our God, and what he does here is he uses what is called apocalyptic imagery. He uses imagery to help us understand things that can sometimes be hard to understand. He uses pictures of natural phenomenon to make a bold point in bold colors. Look at verse 4. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem in the east, and on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, By a very wide valley. What he's describing here is that God has come and he is amongst his people. And he splits the mountain in half as it were. To provide a valley. To provide a way of escape for his people. A way of escape that can't be missed. You can't exactly miss a mountain being divided in half. With a valley pointing you toward a route of escape. What is Zechariah saying here? What he is saying is that God will not abandon his people. No matter how dark it is, no matter when or whatever dangers come, the Lord will bring about deliverance in a way that we can't even imagine. And that is something that we need right now today in our lives, don't we? When things are dark, when we see challenges in front of us, when we are left perhaps without hope, we see that the Lord is on our side and in a way that we could not even imagine He delivers His people. Think of the story of the Red Sea and how the people of God were brought intentionally by the Lord to a place of no escape where they could do nothing on their own, where they had no hope, where they had no idea how God would deliver and He parts the Red Sea to show His power To show his love and to show his faithfulness. This applies to our lives as well. The Lord our God will not abandon you. I know at times it seems like we're left on our own. To fend through broken relationships. To find solutions to problems that are beyond our ken. But we have to remember what Zechariah tells us, that the Lord our God will not abandon us and He will fight for us. And this is especially something that is vivid in our eyes. For where does the Lord stand in this prophecy? But on the Mount of Olives. Do you notice that? You may recall that in the book of Acts, chapter 1, Jesus and his disciples went out to the Mount of Olives. 
And it was from the Mount of Olives that Jesus ascended to heaven. And do you remember what the angel said? Why are you looking up? For this Jesus will return to you in the same way that he was taken up. Here we have hundreds of years before that incident, the prophet Zechariah predicting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Mount of Olives. He will come and he will return, and he will come with his holy angels, as Jesus predicted in Mark chapter 8. He will come in power and glory for his people. You see, what we are called to do is to keep our focus upon the return of Christ. Zechariah is emotionally invested here. He says in verse 5, Then the Lord, my God, my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. He's telling you you need to look beyond your circumstances that can depress you and blind you. We need to look to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question that you can answer honestly in your heart. When was the last time you thought about the return of Jesus? You see, so often we take it for granted and don't set our minds upon it. We think about our careers. We think about the school year. We think about our finances. We think about so many things in our circumstances that surround us. But what Zechariah is telling us is that to find hope, we need to look to the return of Jesus. Because when Jesus returns, everything changes. When Jesus returns, the King is now here. And we know He is here because He makes His presence known. Look at this at verse 6. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. You see, when Jesus returns, creation itself will change. Since the very beginning of creation in Genesis 1, we've had day and night. And the day is ruled by the luminaries, by the bodies of light that the Lord our God created, the sun. And the night is ruled by the moon and the stars. They provide the light. But now here, we are told that there shall be no light. And this phrase, cold or frost, is a part of one of the most difficult passages of Hebrew here in the Bible. Many commentators believe that the phrase here would be better translated, that it is the glorious ones growing dim. That is, it refers to the stars no longer being a source of light, to go along with the day and the night. But what does this mean then? Does that mean that darkness will reign? No. Zechariah tells us in verse 7 that in the evening there'll be light. But how will there be light without a sun? There we go to the book of Revelation that gives us the answer. In Revelation 21, And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
You see, there will be no more need for sun or moon because Jesus is present. Jesus is the light of the world. When Jesus is there, He changes everything. But there's also a river that is described here in verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half to the east, half to the west. It is a river that flows out from the city of God perpetually, Zechariah says, in summer as in winter. And it flows everywhere. And this is a picture of the salvation that Jesus brings with him. The prophet Ezekiel had a vision of a river that came out from the temple that was so powerful, this freshwater river turned salt water fresh. The psalmist spoke of a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And then, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ at the temple stood and cried out and declared that He was the source of this river. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is what it will be like when Jesus comes. All of creation will be changed. Light and life will be everywhere with Jesus at its center. There will be no more death. No more suffering. Jesus will be the king. And his kingdom will be established. This is what we see in verse 9. The Lord will be king over all the earth. You see, the Lord our God has always been the king. By right, he is the king. The difference is when Jesus comes, that he will be acknowledged as the king. All of his rivals will be put under his feet. Everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and his kingdom will be exalted. Zechariah again gives us another one of these word pictures to show us this. It's a topographical picture. Jerusalem was a city set on a hill amongst other hills. But you see here in verse 10, Zechariah tells us that the whole land shall be flattened into a plain. Everything shall be brought low except one place, the city of God. The only exalted place is God's city. Now, in the days of the Bible, Jerusalem was a small and insignificant place. There were many other cities that were seen as being greater. Babylon, Damascus. So it is even in our day that the church is often viewed as small and insignificant. The world does not go out of its way to ask the church's opinion on things. It doesn't take into consideration what the church says. But now the kingdom of Jesus is established. But now it has its rightful place. It is risen to prominence because of what the Lord our God has done. And then the rule of Jesus Christ will show a great blessing to his people. Look at verse 11. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. There will be final security and safety found amongst the people of God, for all evil will be banished. 
This is the description of the end of all things that we see in Revelation 22. If this is the description of the return and rule of Jesus, then we must face the reality of Jesus' return. And there's where we begin in verse 12. We begin with the reality of a just judgment. And on that day, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Now Zechariah turns to the reality of what this means. Because for far too long, people have acted like Jesus makes no difference at all. And what Zechariah is saying is that he makes all the difference. And that if we wage war against God, now we will see the judgment for that war. That judgment comes and it's very personal. The picture is vivid and horrible. Flesh rotting, eyes rotting in the sockets, tongues rotting in the mouth. I mean, let's face it, this is disgusting. This is horrible. No one would want to even see this happen, let alone happen to themselves. But the truth of God's word is that this is just a metaphor. And this metaphor is not even in the same realm of judgment as hell. There are those who are in hell who would wish and pray they could have this judgment instead of hell. You see, for those who turn their back on Jesus, for those who mock the cross, for those who think they can do it all on their own without Jesus, who will not bow the knee to the King, there is only judgment. There is judgment personally. And that judgment flows out and shows us our relationships in our lives. Look at verse 13. There is a great panic that strikes them and their hands go against one another. You see, there is a great fiction that is out in the world today. And that fiction is that hell is a party town. And that I may as well go on to hell because all my friends are there and we're going to whoop it up. We're going to do whatever we want. You see, what Zechariah says is hell is not party. Hell is full of sin and hate. And all those in hell battle each other, hate each other, sin against each other. They are robbed of any grace, common or otherwise, that God showered in their lives. Hell is the place of unchecked, full hate. And then Zechariah then also pokes at something in our modern materialist culture that is another problem. In verse 14 he says that all of their wealth, gold, silver, garments, pack animals, everything will be taken from them and given to another. You see, one of the other challenges we have in our world today is that people lean on stuff. As they reject God. I don't need God. I've got stuff. I've got a great car. 
I've got a big nest egg. I've got a huge house. I've got a great job. And you see, what Zechariah says is, all of the things in this instance that you are leaning on will be taken from you. You know the pithy saying, you can't take it with you? That's what Zechariah is saying here. When your trust is in things that are changeable, mutable, and will decay, your trust is in vain. Have you given any thought to this? Maybe you assume nothing will change. Maybe you assume you can gather and keep things. But God tells us that there is a judgment and that that judgment is horrible. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and those who reject Him. And for those who reject Him, there is just judgment. But there is also a further picture of Christ's reign that we see here at the end of this chapter in verses 20 and 21. There is not only judgment at the coming of Christ. There is also great blessing that comes upon those that have put their trust in our Lord. And what it means first and foremost is that holiness will be universal. Look at the way Zechariah describes it. On that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. Now at first glance that may not seem like much. But you have to remember throughout the Old Testament, there were things on which there were inscribed, Holy or holiness to the Lord. The garments of the priest. The very things in the Holy of Holies. Not just in the temple, but in the holiest place of the temple. And now here, what Zechariah says, is that the bells that are on horses will be just as holy. You can't think of anything that would be more common or everyday than the bells on horses. Unless, of course, it's pots and pans in the kitchen. Which is also what Zechariah says. Everyday dishes in the home will seem like the places in the temple. You see, what this means is the most common things when Jesus returns will be holy. Because sin will be banished forever. There will no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord. And the word there for traitor is actually the word Canaanite. There will no longer be deceptive, manipulative merchants. Everything will be holy before the Lord. Are you thinking about the return of Jesus today? Are you preparing for it now? Have you given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to the place where you have said to yourself, I can't make it on my own. I don't have enough work to do what is necessary. I need Jesus. Are you making holiness your pursuit to be ready for the return of Christ and to live in His kingdom? This is what Zechariah is pointing us to. To lift our eyes from the mundane of everyday life and to look forward and to see Jesus and His return. And in that, to find hope. And in that, to find joy. And in that, 
to find peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the word that you have given to Zechariah. We thank you, O Lord, for reminding us that we must look to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when he comes, he will change everything. He will gather his people. He will banish all sin. And all will be holy before him. Lord, help us to make this not just something we think of occasionally or wish upon. But help us to make it a part of our everyday life. Even as we go forward, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.